You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 250 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with... Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I am okay. Okay. All right. Yeah, well, you know, I'm episode right. 250, is that oh. like, you know how you can have like a diamond anniversary or a silver anniversary or whatever? I wonder if there's a, a number for that, I suppose. We should make one up. It's like a jubilee, sort of. Do you think we need to have a thing? We should have had some kind of we event. Forgot. We need a parade. <laughs> We'll do it for three hundred. This is, you know, what this is. We've discussed in the past the under celebrator, and this would have to be. We are. <laughs> this would have to be a prime example of under celebration, yes, right yes. here. So true. So, so true. we can just kind of like yay us two hundred two hundred and fifty episodes. That's wow. That's a lot you know, of talking. Yeah, that is so true about under-celebrating and I think that we do have a tendency to do that. Some people, you know, are like us and they have a tendency to do that, whereas other people really, really make a point to celebrate their milestones and whether that is finishing 10,000 words or maybe not 10,000, finishing 100,000 words or finishing your manuscript or getting your book deal or whatever, it's sometimes because it's been so long in the making, it's almost like an anticlimax and you you might have a little open a beer at home or something, but we probably generally as creatives don't make enough of a big deal about this sort of thing, do you think? Well, I think we should have done something. Like I'm feeling remiss. <laughs> I'm actually perhaps remiss and remorse at the fact that we didn't, you know, yay us in some way. Like, yes, okay. you know, balloons. Something. We'll have to rectify that. We'll we'll think of something to do during the week. All right. Okay. But uh, let's move on, and because maybe we can take some suggestions. Oh yes, yes. Podcast community. Yes. What do you think we should do to celebrate? 250 episodes of hashtag Valinal talking mm. to you every week. Or, yes. you know, what, how can you help us celebrate? Maybe you can show us a picture of yourself with your banoffee pie or your, <laughs> I don't know, your copy of the Mapmaker Chronicles or I don't know, something. Can you, yeah. can you share with us in our yeah. excitement <laughs> or help us raise our excitement levels a little? That would be good. <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. And, of course, if you're new to this podcast, where you can hang out with the uh, entire community who are such a fantastic dynamic group of people is in our Facebook group. So just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. It's free to join and we'd love to have you in there because it's such an awesome group of people with some great discussions. Now, we do want to give a shout-out to someone with a really cool name. The name is 
um, oh, I've got it wrong. It's the heading that's really cool. The heading that she's put in her iTunes review is Literary Cheeseburger. I thought that was her name. I thought that was like a really cool avatar. Anyway, it's Madeline from Australia and she's headed her review, Literary Cheeseburger. And she has said, listening to Val and Al is like eating the first bite of a cheeseburger when you've been dieting for a week. You appreciate every piece. This podcast is full of brilliant material that I will no doubt use on my literary journey. I look forward to every episode and appreciate all the effort the girls go to. I love the seemingly conversational tone of the podcast box delivering brilliant material. <laughs> wow! We have literary never been described as a cheeseburger before, have we? I absolutely love it. I think we should all go and eat literary cheeseburgers yeah. to celebrate our 250th episode. <laughs> That is so cool. Literary cheeseburger. Oh, I've got that on a T-shirt. I think it's a definite cheese T-shirt material. Mm. Yeah. Well. Like when, we, when we get our merch together, because, of course, you know, there has yes. to be merch at some point, right? Speaking, I'm still waiting for the merch. Speaking Val. of merch. Hashtag Val and Al. Oh, have you got merch? It, well, I thought I was. But could, because on the weekend – I went, because, you know, with merch, like if you have a T-shirt, if you have a tote bag, if you have, you know, tea towels, whatever, you have to put stuff on the merch, correct? Like yeah. a picture of Bon Jovi or whatever. I mean, not that that's what we're going to have. We would have literary No, we would have right? literary cheeseburger, clearly. Or hashtag, where are you? How are, where, how are how you? How are you, Al? <laughs> or hashtag word of the week. That's right. So mm. on the weekend, I did a silk screening class. Right. You know? Yeah. So what are you going to – are you going to silk screen us all a literary cheeseburger teach? <laughs> well, here's the thing. I now know how. <laughs> right. Well, you can just add that to your to-do list. And uh, just if you would just like to indicate in the podcast Facebook group if you would be interested in a personally silk screen T-shirt by Valerie, let us know. But here's the thing. I discovered that – Oh, I mean, it's a great Wait. result, but it's so much effort. Mm. You know, like you need so much equipment. Mm. And I remember dirty. doing it in um, art class in about year eight. Yeah. Did I'm you a bit do late to the party? <laughs> Have you never done it before? No. Nah. Oh, man. We did. So we did silk screening. Um, I can't remember what I silk screened, but I'm pretty sure it was awful because I'm really, it's not my thing. But we also <laughs> did. Um, uh, you know, batik, batik, batik. Oh, yeah, yeah, batik. yeah, We had to do, you know, we had to create a, a design, and we had to dye it fifty times with the wax, yep. and you know, do all that sort of stuff, which mm. was that was a huge amount of fun. Um, again, mine ended up really waxy, but not particularly, <laughs> you know, <laughs> not particularly brilliant. And uh, but you know, I really enjoyed the actual process. But did you not do that either? Did you not get to do oh, the little actually, wax design with the little boiled thing? Yeah, I do recall doing batik, but we didn't. I did not do silk screening. So for the first time ever, I did it on the weekend, and um, of course, I silk screened apostrophes. Right, of course. <laughs> what else would you do? Yes, we, that's right. Did you do lino printing? Did you ever do lino printing at at school? I did, did not lino at school. Printing? But I have done since, yes. Oh, in see? fact, I have some lino cut stuff right next to me, right next to me right now. Oh, there you go. Yes. So you know, I've had I've had all the training, but I haven't actually. That could be <laughs> our second career, Al. We could go into silk screening and do merch. Oh, can we not? That would. <laughs> <laughs> just, all right. I, I really feel that that is not my way forward. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'll leave you that to you. Know. 
All right, I'll I'll, I'll report back. I, but I don't think it's I've caught the silk screening bug, and I don't think this little bright shiny object is continuing to shine. Okay, all right. Next, well, moving right along then. Next. <laughs> moving right along, lots of people actually emailed us with this story and we definitely have to mention it. It has been on the news everywhere and it's about a romance novelist who has been accused of killing her husband. It was in the Sydney Morning Herald, it was on CBS, it's on all the news outlets because it's because it's such a twist. Now, she's had self-published, she's a romance novelist who has self-published titles including a book called, get this, The Wrong Husband. Ooh, there's a tell. Uh Uh-huh. And Mm. she was arrested by people, uh, well, by police (laughs) in Portland, Oregon, on suspicion of murdering her chef husband three months ago. He was found dead inside the, I'm assuming where he worked, which was the Oregon Culinary Institute. And, uh, yeah, she has been arrested and charged with murder. Oh, dear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, dear. But so her book, The Wrong Husband, tells the story of a woman who hatches a plan to escape her abusive husband while on an anniversary trip overseas. Mm. So, you know, who knows? But I wonder if he read it because, you know, she probably put the whole plot in there. Yeah. I, I don't think he did. I suspect he did not. That's a really no. sad story. Like that I often joke about story. the fact that um, – you know, if if police ever kind of checked out my search history, that they mm. would be, you know, concerned about my state of mind when in actual fact I'm just an author. And I think a lot of authors, I mean, imagine being a crime novelist. Imagine what your search history looks like if you are a crime yes. novelist. Yes. And imagine L.A. Larkin has a fair, and Candace Fox, imagine Candace Fox's. I and imagine know. hers would be fairly intense. Um, so, you know, you know, you often joke about it, but like when you, the reality of it is it's not a joke, is it? Like that's really mm. sad all round, really. Yes. Yes, true. It's it's also like when you um look at people's Netflix history or YouTube watch history, you know. Mm. <laughs> it tells you a lot about a person, doesn't it? Mm. Mm. Very interesting. So but, we're going to um, move on to something. You're sorry, you were going to say? No, I wasn't going to say anything more. It's just yeah, that's quite sad. Enough yeah. about the sad story. Yeah. All right, let's move on to something quite different. And mm. this is something I'm seeing a lot more of lately. And let me know whether you're witnessing a similar trend. Because there has been quite an explosion in the world of content writing, I'm finding a lot of people um, kind of mixing up the terms content writing and copywriting. And I just thought it would be useful to make the distinction because sometimes there could be, you know, a bit of mis- misinterpretation and also some confusion between yourself and the client about what you're meant to be doing. So, mm. yeah, I, I think that um, it's definitely something that's ha- happening more and more of. Um, see, copywriting, just to be clear in case anyone um, isn't totally familiar with the term, is not a generic term just to use in any kind of writing or any kind of nonfiction writing. Traditionally, copywriting was very specifically associated with words used to sell or persuade or change behavior or influence people, usually to buy something or Mm. to sign up for something or, you know, something like that. And so it was really commonly used in the advertising agency because obviously they were trying to sell something. But it's extended beyond the advertising 
world because you don't have to be in advertising to want to sell something and you can be doing copywriting for a whole range of reasons but if the point is to persuade influence encourage to buy encourage to do something Mm. and so but what's happened is because the world of content writing has exploded in other words every business has a blog now every business has um, a whole heap of content that, that they're producing not just in the form of articles but also in uh, social media posts and YouTube videos and stuff like that. For, but for the purposes of this exercise, let's just talk about articles and written, the written word. Now, conceivably, people might say, but that is designed to sell. And it is, I mean, in, in the sense that content writing is meant to position that business as an expert in their area so that you think good things about them and that you ultimately buy from them. But that is, it's not overt selling in the same way traditional copywriting is it is meant to be uh, a much more of a soft sell in other in, and sometimes it might not be a sell at all it's really just being helpful it's providing helpful information and um and hopefully the 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 reader finds it useful and then thinks well of that particular organization so the thing is though a lot of people are starting to call that copywriting. And I'm not mm. going to get into semantics or anything. It's just that if you're dealing with a client, it can actually be useful to clarify that distinction so that you're using the, the you know, the same terms for the right things. Mm. And, and I think that's happened because um, sometimes they just get their copywriters to write the content because they're already employed by them. So why wouldn't you, right? And Yeah. And and so they end up writing the content. But sometimes they employ specifically content writers, which usually have much more experience in editorial style features, like the people who do our freelance writing course, because these this content is usually much more in the style of an article that you would find in a magazine. And of yeah. course, yeah, there could be a crossover in that they could get some of their content writers to write some sales copy from time to time. But usually they are quite distinct skills because the way you write an article like you, that would appear in a magazine is actually quite different to the structure and psychology you would use to write sales copy, which is copywriting. So my whole point of this. <laughs> my point, and I do have one. <laughs> yes. Right. Is that there has been a blurring of lines and sure, if you're talking to people, you're not going to nece- at the pub about whether, and they call you a copywriter, you're not necessarily going to give this long speech and educate them on the different really? nuances no? of copywriting Gosh. and content writing. But it is important if you are in this space to understand the difference so that when you do go into a client, you are talking the right thing and you're using the right terms. And so because I'm seeing more and more of that, I thought I, it was important to mention. There you go. Hmm. Right. <laughs> I'm glad we had this little chat. <laughs> no, I know. Ser- seriously, no. Seriously, no. It is important. I think it's important to understand. <laughs> Sorry. I know. Gosh, I'm just you know, I'm on fire today, am I? Okay. So I do. Um, I totally agree with you that it's really important to understand yeah. what it is that you're getting yourself into, and I think it's under. It's important to understand what kind of expectation the client has from you in the Mm. sense of, you know, are you writing an article that is just, just as you would write a feature or do they want you to, you know, 
is there a sell aspect to it, in which case you need to include X, Y, Z of their products and things like that? Yes. How are you then going to present that? Um, is it going to be um, actually noted in what on whatever platform that you're writing it for that it is sponsored content or not? Like all of these things are actually important for you to consider because it not only comes back to the difference between copywriting and content writing, but it comes back to you as a writer or as a journalist or as a whatever it is that you're doing and it, there's a – there's a level of ethics involved in how this is going to be presented and you need to think about what your um, what your position is on that stuff too because if it's presented as hard fact and it's only one one perspective, then you need to understand what yeah. it is you're writing. Am I right? Yep, absolutely, yeah. definitely. And yeah. it is important that if you say that you're a copywriter, if you call yourself a copywriter and, you know, you – you get clients and you actually only really want to write content, but their expectation is that yeah. you're going to write their ad or they're yeah. going to write your, they, you're going to write their web page that's meant to convert yeah. lots of customers. Yeah. That might stress you out. Now, the thing is, some people might not get stressed out in that, yeah, I can write that. It doesn't matter. I'll still get paid. I can write that. But the reality is that if you, if that page doesn't perform, if it doesn't then get customers, they're not. They may not think you're that effective as a copywriter because yeah. some of the gun the gun copywriters that I've met, they will write the copy and they'll do it for a very reasonable or even low cost amount. But they are so confident in their writing, they negotiate a percentage of sales that they're going to achieve as a result of mm -hmm. their copy. Mm. And so that's a that's true copywriting then because it's mm. it's all about persuasion. Mm. So anyway, for those people who are freelance writing and who are dipping their toe in the water of a content writing and copywriting, just thought you might find that useful. All right, so let's move on to our competition this week. Our competition uh, is really cool. You get a chance to win one of three copies of A Letter from Paris by Louisa DC. Oh. Yes. When Louisa receives a message from a French woman, called Coralie, who has found a cache of letters in an attic written about Louisa's father, neither woman can imagine the events it will set in motion, from her father's secret service in World War II to his relationships with some of the most famous bohemian artists in post-war Europe, Louisa unearths a portrait of a fascinating man both at the epicentre and at the mercy of the social and political currents of his time. So if you want to win one of three copies of this book, A Letter from Paris, just go to Writers Centre dot com dot au slash win uh, in order to enter and if you're listening to this podcast in the future don't worry um, there'll be another uh, another awesome competition there for you to enter so writercenter.com.au slash win now I have to say since we're talking about a book on Paris sometimes I do wonder if um, books with the word Paris or the words New York <laughs> in the title can already get a boost, you know what I mean, just because of the romance and, and glamour, or often glamour anyway, uh, 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 or the iconic nature of those names. What do you think? I think that there's a very good reason why those, um, why they're called that, do you know what I mean? So, yes, mm -hmm. I would say so. I would imagine yes. I mean, you know, if you have a particular interest in, I mean, I I know someone, for instance, who's an absolute francophile who pretty much buys everything that has Paris in the title. Yeah. You know, yeah. From, because of the, um, just because of that association. Um, so, 
Potentially, yes. But, you know, the titles of books are very, very carefully constructed and thought about. So the fact that there's so many of them suggests to me that that is a big factor. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. Let's move on then. Al, are we ready for the word of the week? We, we, the royal we, are (laughs) ready for the word of the week, Val. Awesome. So the word of the week is presage. That's P-R-E-S-A-G-E, presage. Huh. Have you heard of that? I have. Oh! <laughs> I actually have a pretty good really? vocab, Belle. I know. I'm so yeah, sad. Yeah, I know. I know. I do. Mm. It's, it's, it goes with being an author. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Funny that. All right. Anywho. So, Yes. Look, I think I, I love words because sometimes they just look and sound like something else. So I think this sounds like a pressed fat flower corsage, but yes. it's not. Oh, you're so, so right. It does. Yes. The Macquarie Dictionary says that it's a presentiment or foreboding. So um, the dictionary goes on to say something that portends or foreshadows a future event, an omen, prognostic, or warning indication. So the sky lowered more threateningly and the sea growled suddenly in the presage of storm. Mm. Mm. Yep. Some people say presage, but uh, mm. but it but it can be said either way. Yeah. Okay. Presage. Good. There you go. Presage. On to other things. I'm glad we got that cleared up. <laughs> now, remember, Al, about two or three episodes ago, I asked you my latest party trick question, which mm. I do like at the hairdresser or at dinner parties or barbecues lately. Mm. And you may recall I asked you um, if you were to write a nonfiction book about the troubled Darrell Lee family, what would oh, you yes. call it? Oh, yes, Rocky Road. Yes. I remember. Good. It's all yes. coming back to me. I had I had a couple of other options, I believe, before we got to Rocky Road. But anyway, yes, Rocky but you Road. you got there in the end. I in, did. And I asked that at the hairdresser yesterday, actually. And, did um, you? My and what did the hairdresser think? Oh, she she didn't get it. Her her husband got it. And mm. the, uh, the and um, we asked it separately to a fellow customer, and she got it. Anyway, mm. so you are right, Rocky Road. And that is indeed the um uh the title of the book by Robert Wainwright, which is about the very, very unusual goings on of the Darrelly family, the famous chocolate family. So I thought um I really enjoyed reading the book and I thought it would be useful to have a chat with Robert. Robert, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Valerie. So for readers who have not read your book yet, just can you give us an idea of what it's about? It's a book about several things, actually. It's Essentially, it's a book about the family behind the iconic uh, confectionery company, Darrell Lee, which uh, many of us grew up with, um, loving their Rocky Road or Rock Lee Road, as they called it, and their licorice, and even they were the inventors of Twisties, believe it or not. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it has that level as a, as a business and the rise and ultimate demise of, of the company, but it, it's more about the family behind this company uh, and in particular the family that lived in Melbourne and uh, who uh, the matriarch of which um, had seven children, four uh, natural and three adopted. 
And how did you get interested in this story? Because it is a cracker of a story, but what piqued your interest to make you think, I'm going to write a book about it? Well, parts of the story had been told before and played out in front of national television a few years ago when um, when brothers and and uh, and sons were arguing over uh, who was in or out of the company. But the thing that changed it all was was uh, getting access to the diary of of the matriarch. Her name was Valerie Lee, and it really put it on another level because you, you saw what what goes on behind and the inner workings of a family and the thought process of parents and then the, uh, the, the agreement or the cooperation of one of the adopted children, her name is Honey, uh, she's now about 69 years old and, and her, I suppose she'd never had a voice with this story and, uh, and the fact that she said that she would talk to me about what happened and about its, its impact on her life really sort of changed the notion of it and gave it far more depth. So it is amazing that you got access to the actual diary of Valerie Lee. How did that happen? And then how did you then proceed to um, get the cooperation of Honey? Well, Valerie um, kept the diary. She wasn't a great diarist by any stretch no. of imagination, but she – she came back to it uh, sometimes uh, there'd be a two-year gap and she'd fill in some gaps. But she had it um, uh, typed out at, at one point and distributed amongst her children and, and others. And uh, and so the copies sort of uh, – there are various copies made. It never, there were never many copies, but ultimately uh, the children and grandchildren had copies and uh, and one of them uh, agreed to sort of let me read it. It had been used in some form before as well. And I think Valerie was uh, of the – she had great opinions and she wasn't afraid to, to make them known. And so there was no great secret of, of, her, of her view of the world, um, but it made great reading. Um, after that, I contacted Honey and she, she had some reticence about the thing because there were painful memories about childhood. But uh, but the fact that she hadn't had a voice and she felt as though her story hadn't been told uh, was an encouragement enough for her to go through the process. And and we handled it carefully, um, but uh, over a period of time. Um, and I hope that uh, sort of I was able to give her that voice that she'd missed all her life. Well, you open with this scene of Honey when she was four years old and it just sucked me in from the first page. And when you are telling the story of like an entire family of which there were seven children and, you know, lots of other people who are involved, it does involve a ridiculous amount of research that obviously goes beyond Valerie Lee's diary and chats with Honey. So how did you determine where where you were going to do your research and how did you then on a practical level structure that that not structure the um, compile that information did you you know do it all digitally did you have piles and piles of boxes like if can you just talk me through that well, I was lucky enough to to uh, get on well with an, another author and writer named Diana Georgeff. Uh, who is uh, a Melbourne journalist, and she had done a biography of one of the adopted children named Shelton uh, about a decade before. And uh, and sadly, Shelton and, and Brett, who is another of the adopted children, have since died. 
Um, but she had interviewed them at the time um, in a different book in the sense that her, her book concentrated on Shelton's life and my book was a much broader perspective about, about um, several members of the family and the way the family worked. But it gave me access to a thought process of the, of the children that I couldn't get access to. And so it was through the cooperation of Diana that I was able to get access to at least some interviews with them. Uh, and, and then it was really a balancing act because there was so much written about, uh, about Shelton and he had such a colourful life as a, a rebel poet in, in, uh, in uh, Melbourne that it was more a case of trying to bring up Brett, who hadn't had a voice at all, and find out more about him and then get Honey to, um, to sort of talk about her life. And so, and, and then Valerie, had the the diary was there for Valerie's life, so it was it was more to me a case of trying to sort of get the balance right between the characters than it was a a great research um, job. There there was a lot of research. Um, mm. I mean, I struggled to find out about Brett's life, and ultimately had to make freedom of information applications through the armed services to find out about his record there, uh, court records, all those sorts of things. Um, and, and research nowadays is for, for a writer is easier than it once was in the sense that we have great archival records online now, but mm-hmm. it's not as, not as good as, and will never be perfect as, as really getting out there, talking to as many people as you can and actually going into uh, archives and actually reading through microfiche or hard copy records to actually see it yourself. It's always a mix of those things that sort of make the research uh, credible. Can you give us some kind of time frame, like maybe just some signposts about when you first thought of the idea of the book and when you started, like how long it took you to write your your manuscript and and, and so on? Uh, yeah, look, I've, uh, I tend to work on more than one project at the same time. Uh, it, this was a little bit accidental in doing that, but I, I found that um, the way I work, I sometimes can get almost bored with one project and then I find it quite refreshing to move on to something else. So it's hard to really say um, this is exactly this amount of time. I, I suppose I had the project on the go for a couple of years but uh, the actual time I spent on it was probably half that, maybe a year and a bit, I suppose. Um, and, and writers work differently, obviously. Um, some writers like to write early drafts, so they do all their research first and then write. I tend to do a mix of those things. I tend to, um, to research and write at the same time, partly because some of the books I've done have involved tiny, tiny pieces of, of information that aren't immediately recognisable as important. And if I don't write them down in some form, I can forget them. So I tend to sort of research and write, research and write all at the same time. Um, but uh, it, it's it's just everybody has a different technique, I suppose. Mm. Um, but, but I'd say about a year. Okay. What was the hardest thing about writing this book? Uh, well, structure, um, which I, I think is a really, really important thing for writers is um, because not all all stories are different. Even though they might seem uh, the same in the way that they're, they're constructed, they aren't. Um, so my structure was, was difficult because I had 
you know, uh, I had four big lives to try to balance and tell the stories of. That's the three adopted children plus Valerie. I had uh, also the the story of the business to balance in the background and and other elements of of the family. So structure I found difficult. Also, um, in dealing with these types of stories, it's not the first one I've done of this type. Uh, it is it is establishing a relationship with with people who who protect, understandably protect their stories and they all have different versions of them. And I think one of the important things if you're writing nonfiction is to be very aware of uh, people's feelings. Um, you can't please all of them, but what you can try to be is, is fair and, and, um, and honest with them about what you're doing and how you're going about it. So on that point, you had to you you dealt with honey and and um, other people involved in in this story, but particularly with honey as it comes out in the book. And this isn't a spoiler; it's it's obvious that um that her three adopted children, Valerie Lee, treated quite differently to her natural children. What is how do you approach it when you're um, hesitant about? touching on certain topics but you really want to know the answer or when somebody starts to shut down how do you approach really sensitive situations uh well one of the options i give is that people um uh, may choose to sit in their own environment and answer questions in their own time in their own way so rather than if, if there's a, a difficult issue um i might say send an email with the questions and just let them dwell on it, and then when right. they're ready, if they're ready, come back to me and then uh, tell, you know give me an answer. Uh, it's sometimes not easy to, to sort of talk as we are now and suddenly throw in a question that's very very complex. Um, so uh, again, it's sort of being aware because answers can change. Um, the first one they give isn't necessarily uh, the most accurate, or, or they haven't had time to think about it. So. <clears throat> patience is important and um and I think you just have to be a human being when you're dealing with these types of stories um as I say there are particularly with this type of story uh, honey has a sister named Charisse and Charisse's mm-hmm. view of the of the same life and the same childhood is 180 degrees different than than yeah. honey uh and and I wanted a difficult thing was to go to Charisse and convince her to talk and to tell give me her version it's important that she did, and it was important that I allowed her the freedom to express it the way she wanted to in her own context. And she did so knowing that probably she wouldn't like the end result because it didn't match with her, her views. Um, so that was equally difficult, difficult to honey, but in a different way. Yeah. So Charisse was one of the natural children. And when you spoke to her, and as you say, she had a very different view of, of life, of, of her perception of what that, that family went through. You were probably at the stage where you had researched the family so much, you possibly knew more things than Charisse about their whole history. Do, did you, um, Apart from obviously getting her to talk, did you feel any compulsion to say, did you know this or did you know this or did you know this Um, about your own family? (laughs) Well, (laughs) there were things that, yes, I did know. Um, I didn't really – I I actually felt – sorry is the wrong word. I felt for Charisse because she was in a difficult situation. So the last thing I wanted to do was 
was show off what I might know that she didn't. Um, and uh, it, 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 you know, her views are uh, as valid as anybody else's. Um, the, and and the, the story was really about the adopted children and, and Valerie. And so I think, thankfully for her, I don't think she wanted her life explored personally to any great degree. So, um, it, you know, it was it was just a different balancing act. But um, I know what you mean about knowing about families. Uh, I've dealt with other families before um, who have been uh, just had, just so surprised about what actually happened and they had no idea. Um, I wrote about uh, an, an Australian suffragette who was famous here. Her name was Muriel Matters, and she was a, a forgotten suffragette who was the first woman to make a speech in the House of Commons, believe it or not. And none of her family in, in Western Australia, and she has three nieces who are still alive, even knew the, the basics of her life. All they knew was that she lived an exciting life in London. They had no nice. idea that, that she was one of the most famous suffragettes of all time. Um, wow. So. Yeah, I mean, families are really strange things because people hide or don't talk about things that are because at the time they're they're considered embarrassing or whatever. Uh, but in in you know years later, there's something to be proud of. Do you recall when you very first heard of the that that um, Valerie Lee had these seven children and and she the, she treated three of them very differently and. You know, which is so bizarre in itself. Do you recall when you first heard of that? Well, there was a, there was a the first time I became aware of the story was some years before I became interested, which was uh, the ABC had a program called Dynasties, which was about families, obviously. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And uh, and and two of the brothers and one of the brothers' sons um, were at each other's throats on this program. And in fact, the oldest mm-hmm. son uh, was actually dying of leukemia, and he was at the time, and he was on. You know, on on television, uh, mm-hmm. explaining why he'd sacked his his son and his brother, and it was it was incredible that this family or these family members were actually talking about it openly and honestly, um, and this hurtful experience on national television, and it made riveting viewing because not only what they were saying, but but that that family members would say those sorts of things, um, mm-hmm. and, and then it was after that, sometime after that, that uh, that. Um, uh, the possibility of, of writing this story emerged and it, it grabbed my attention immediately. Um, Valerie Lee, I, I mean, I wouldn't say necessarily she's batshit crazy, but she certainly has a very unusual view of the world in bringing up children. And now that you've done all this research into her family, what's your opinion on why she did what she did and why she treated the children so differently? And and why she was the way she was. Well, there's no doubt that uh, Valerie was eccentric. Um, <laughs> she was a, an amazingly creative spirit. I mean, she designed the Daryl Lee uniforms that that became mm-hmm. famous with the, with the bows. She was a, a, a master of of um, of advertising. Uh, she was she was full of ideas all the time. She sang. She wrote songs. She sewed, she knitted, she she was a, a, a fantastic person in those sorts of regards. Uh, she worked hard, um, but she had this uh, this work ethic, work ethic was amazing, really. But she had, um, I, you know, I saw her as somebody who believed that they were doing the right thing, but didn't understand it. So her her view of love 
was that if you provided a good pair of shoes and a great school, then you were providing love and you were, you were providing something that was um, of great value to children that otherwise might not have them. Um, that's not love. Um, that's part of, you know, providing a warm home and food obviously is part of, of love and caring, but, but love is something far more um, emotional. And, and uh, what she ignored for, for years with Shelton, for example, were professionals who were saying, look, he doesn't need discipline. He needs, he needs love. He needs understanding. He needs care. And she was so busy with, with this life of, of great business success and, and using staff to sort of raise the children that she couldn't really understand that part of it. Um, I, I think she, she thought she loved those children. She clearly loved her own children because it was a natural thing. So I don't really think that, that she deliberately, um, unloved the adopted children, but they frustrated her. They were far more energetic and creative than her own children. Uh, and, and it just became a burr in the saddle. Um, so she's a very complex, person who can be admired on some level and and, uh, and criticise on others. You have written a number of different books, including one on Rose Hancock-Porteous, including um, Born and Bred about Martin Bryant, you know, the, the Port Arthur massacre, um, about uh, the, ki- um, the one called The Killing of Caroline Byrne. They're all so different. <laughs> yes, they are. So different. And, you know, Dara Lee. How do you make the decision or are there some kind of parameters that make you decide I want to spend a whole heap of my um, time on this project? How do you choose? Uh, Well, I'm a journalist by heart um, and I think that for me it comes down to two simple things. One is it's a great yarn. That's in, in the vernacular of a journalist. A story is a story. It doesn't need to be tricked up even if it, it if, if it grabs you immediately, then it's worth telling in some form. So at that simple level, they're all fantastic. Um, the other thing is, is I love the, the notion of people and, and, um, and, and people behind stories. And we're all flawed in some way. If we wrote about somebody who's perfect, it would be boring. So they are, you know, the one thing all these stories have in common is incredibly interesting, uh, diverse, uh, fascinating, flawed characters. Um, you know, Rose was one that uh, sort of um, fell into my lap. I, I had written about Rose and I knew about her. I was one of the first journalists to write about her. Uh, and it was sort of because I'd done that that the opportunity arose. But you know, she's she, her life is like a Gilbert and Sullivan musical, and the characters <laughs> behind that are just you know you wouldn't believe that they that it was true if it was a, if it was a work of fiction, but but it was. And um, you know, uh, she I found her a fascinating and admirable person in in particularly in her early life as a young mother. Um, but she actually looked on those times with with derision, and and she wanted to forget them. Um, you know, she's a fascinating character uh, and um, and worth writing about. Um, Martin Bryant, I think, is a terribly important story because, as tragic and awful as it is, behind there there's the story of of a boy who was who is misunderstood, uh, of a system of that doesn't work in in uh, and still doesn't work in taking care of people who have mel- mental illness uh, and. I think it's a mistake if Australia turns its back on 
on a tragedy simply because it was a tragedy. And I think there are great lessons to be learned and there's a human story behind that tragedy that needs to be taken into account. Um, so that was the journalist in me saying that this is a story that needs to be told properly. Um, but they're all different. I'm glad. Otherwise, again, you'd get bored if you wrote the same story all the time, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, sure. And so when you're in the depths of a story, like you're, you're in the middle of writing it, do you have a particular process or routine? I know you've mentioned that you kind of write and research, but what I mean is a, a routine to your day. Do you um, kind of divide it up? project one in the morning, project two in the afternoon, or do you have a word count goal or something to give you some structure to get the words out? Um, I wish I was that organised. I tend to work, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's um, when I work well, um, I, I I love the period where I would have my interviews set up so I was, I was ready to write from them and I'd get up at five in the morning and it would be black and there'd be silence around me and I had a, a, a black coffee and I just knew I was there to work, and it really worked well. But I also find that I take great delight sometimes in an evening writing session with the window open, uh, music in my ears, and a glass of white wine. And I just—it's the time when I let myself go. And in my in my world, I vomit and then clean up the mess. Uh, in terms of writing, obviously. Um, so, so I, I work different ways, but, but I was, you know, the thing that I think is important, um, uh, all writers have a different way of working, but I think one of the common things that's important is that you plan big, but you work small. So, you know, it's often been said that you, that you've got a mountain and that's true. So the days that you write 50 words are as important as the days that you write a thousand because they might be the hardest 50 words as a segue into some other part of the book. And, and all those sessions where you, where you don't write great uh, amounts of words, but you work hard and you solve problems are as important as those big days. So that's what I mean by work small is, mm. uh, is, uh, I think is, is a common thread through people, uh, through, through successful writers in the sense that they complete projects. Mm. And so in the process of writing this and researching this book, what were did you come across any surprises? Were there some things that you discovered that you just went, really? I think it was all a surprise, really. Um, <laughs> and, I, I mean, you know, sometimes when you're pitching ideas to publishers, um, depending on where you're doing it, they some of them expect almost a completely written book. And, and I, I find that incredible, particularly with nonfiction, because mm. you only – because it's a journey, it's an adventure, and if you close, yep. your, if, if you think you know everything when you begin, you're not going to learn anything more. So um, you've, you've really got to uh, open your mind and, and go on that journey and enjoy chasing rabbits down holes occasionally. you just got to know when to turn back and, and close up the rabbit hole. But, you know, it, it's writing is hard. It's a hard, hard thing to do. But there's some great joy and adventure in that, and I think you have to embrace that side of it as as well. Um, you know, things that turn around are, are when you interview two different people about the same event, and uh, and perspective um, suddenly changes what you know or how you write something. So I, I think that's a terribly important part of the process. Mm. Are you working on your next book now? Yes, I've started on an, on a new book. Um, I've I sort of the way things have gone in recent years, I, I tend to have 
I, I tend to stagger things, so I know where I'd like to go next. Um, I'm, I'm going to write about a woman named Enid Lindemann, who was a, an heir to the, the wine fortune, who was, uh-huh. uh, yeah, she led this amazingly hedonistic life in the 1930s. Um, she was Australian, but she was she was a great friend of Somerset Maugham, who uh, called her Lady Kilmore because her four husbands died. Um, <laughs> she didn't kill them, but it's a great story. Uh, she used to, she was, used to walk down Mayfair with a leopard on a diamond collar. Um, she had yeah, she had she when she walked into or sashayed into the Monte Carlo Casino, the whole place stopped. And the Aga Khan told her one night that she she wasn't allowed to wear white anymore, that she had to come dressed in black because he was distracting him from his card game. So she had this amazing life and she was this uh, figure who'd stopped traffic and she was from downtown Sydney. Um, so it's a, a great, a great rollicking adventure. Yes. How did you come across her and decide, you know, this is going to be the one? Well, I wrote a story a few years ago about a woman named Sheila, which uh, mm. proved quite popular. And um, Sheila was this sort of amazing tomboy figure who uh, grew up in near Goulburn uh, and became one of the most famous women in the world and had an affair with uh, with the Queen's father, Bertie. Uh, and and like journalism a bit is that when you write something, quite often people will come forward and say, yeah. have you heard this story? Have you heard this story? And, and that's the way – um, journalism works too in great, in great, uh, often. Uh, and, uh, and Enid's name was brought up during a dinner conversation several years ago. And, and the, uh, this, uh, person at dinner said, well, I'll tell you what, I've heard of this woman who would make Sheila look like a nun. And <laughs> proceeded to tell me a little bit about her life. And really, as soon as he start talking about, uh, parading a leopard and a diamond collar down Mayfair, <laughs> uh, you've got, you've got me immediately, you know? So it's, uh, <laughs> It's it's a a great story of hedonism, but a, a wonderful sort of story. I think colourful. So you actually live in London, is that right? And you're researching you're researching from there. What do you? Why are you living there? Um, my wife and I came here ten years ago. We we're both journalists for the Sydney Morning Herald. My wife's name is Paula Totoro, and uh, she had been appointed the European correspondent for the paper. Uh, so we came here for a three year stint. Uh, and decided, uh, I mean, we loved being in Europe. And uh, sadly, with the demise of, of our newspapers and the change in staffing levels and things like that, really forced our hand. And we decided that it was better to try to reinvent ourselves here than to head home and face the probability that uh, with many other colleagues, we could be out of work. Um, because of, of, of time. And I mean, I think the Herald's lost half its staff now. Uh, we were a great purge of about 75 of our colleagues lost their jobs in the same night. So it was through necessity and also adventure of life. Um, mm. I love, love Australia, love coming back to Australia, uh, and, uh, for all it is, but I also like being in the middle of the world after growing up on the edge of it. So it's yes. just, just, just another adventure. And the world's Great. a lot smaller than that, actually. And what's, finally, what's your top three tips for aspiring writers who'd like to be in a position where you are one day writing books? Well, I think, I think you have to write because you want to write. I think the last thing that you should do, particularly when you're starting out, 
is seek a, a financial footing for a project. Uh, it's unless you're extremely lucky, um, it's not going to work. And the truth is that that's not why you should write. Uh, writing writing is a, is a joy and a uh, a hard joy, but that's the basis of it. So I, I really believe that anybody who wants to be a writer wants to be a writer. Um, the one I mentioned before, I think, is important because for all its joy, it is a practical um, exercise. And I think that planning big but working small is is a way of 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 tackling the mountain that you will as as a um, as a uh, as a writer. And I also think that um, I I think you should seek um, advice and listen to how other people work, but be uh, be happy to find your own rhythm. Um, that's important. Rhythm with writing is is really hard to find. That Zen moment where you foot, where everything seems easy, uh, it's hard to get. And once you've found it, then you don't let it go. So you find your own rhythm and pace and way to work. And I think um, I, I think that's important as well. Great advice. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Robert. Thank you very much, Valerie. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you want to be a freelance writer, our five-week course in Freelance Writing Stage 1 is the fastest way to get there. Step-by-step, you'll explore how to get story ideas, approach editors, research and structure your article, plus interview skills, industry expectations, and much more. You'll enjoy the convenience of learning online in just a couple of hours a week and have your own tutor to answer all your questions. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash freelance. There you go, Robert Wainwright. All right, so um, what are you doing in the coming week, Al? Ah, uh, what am I doing? I, I'm, well, I'm, what am I doing? I don't know. I'm, I've, I've got three manuscripts that I'm working on at the moment uh, still. I think we talked about this last week. I've got them at all various stages. Yeah. So I took my dog for a walk yesterday because I had to drop the car in for a service as one does and the serv- that it's about a 45, 50 minute walk. So I put the dog in the back, drop the car mm-hmm. off, walk the dog home. Mm-hmm. And whilst I was walking the dog home, because I've got this manuscript that I've, it's about 25,000 words and I've been wrestling with it because it's just, I mean, the idea is there and it's all wonderful and I'm loving so much about it, but I, it's just not gelling for me. Mm. And um, I decided on the way home that I'm telling it from the wrong character's perspective. Oh. I think we've talked about this in the past. I think I've been, this is something that I have actually been wrestling with now for quite some time and I had decided originally I can't remember if we talked about this or not maybe that just I I imagined that I could have I do I am an author (laughs) a lot a lot goes on in my head that I said remember when you went to the post office and you just had a conversation with no one you know but the the worst (laughs) I know and I do that but the problem is also that I have these conversations in my head and then I think I've had them and so when a week later I say to my husband why didn't you do that? And he says, you never asked me to do that. I'm going, no, I'm sure I had that conversation with you. And he goes, is this another one of those imaginary conversations that you have? And, and he's right. You know, I suddenly realised that I did have the thought but it did, I never articulated it. Um, anyway, 
so maybe we didn't talk about this. But anyway, so I've been wrestling with this for some time and I realised on the way home yesterday, Procrasty Pup and I were having a chat and I realised that I have to rewrite the whole thing. Wow. Mm. Oh, and how because does that I, make you well, feel? Well, there was this big thorny – I had this big thorny issue as to – because I kept thinking to myself, oh, it needs to be this other character, but I had this big thorny issue as to why it couldn't be and it was a thorny issue. Like it was a big – in, you know, it looked like an insurmountable issue as to why it couldn't be that particular character's story, yeah. um, particularly from an ongoing perspective. Yeah. Uh, but I realised on the way home yesterday, I suddenly went, oh, yes, of course. Oh. That's that's the solution to that. And now yeah. I can actually open up the whole thing. Wow. So I'm thinking that I'm hopefully going to actually get started on that. That's my so I'm plan. curious to know with that obviously you're going to start again but you've got essentially got the some the bones of some of the story in your head but you're going to rewrite it. Mm-hmm. Do you have now that you've figured that needs to be your course of action have you then put any other things in place like even just in your head like oh, I'm going to attempt to get x month x number of words by a certain time period or or No, or I no, I I haven't because um, I've got a lot of other things going on at the moment and it's it's kind of like I've got a lot of family things going on. I've got um, a lot of, um, you know, I'm, I'm going away again in a couple of weeks for another writers' festival. Um, I've agreed to do another writers' festival in November. I'm organising some stuff. Like I've, I've already got uh, three or four things booked in for next year between January and July. I'm dealing with paperwork for those already. Um, I've just got a lot – there's just been an awful lot of stuff going on that's been so busy that I haven't. Um, I've just just I've made a note. I've worked out my course of action, and it's also this particular manuscript is not my priority at the moment um, because I have some other things that I need to do with these with two other manuscripts I'm working on. So it's it's one of those situations of it's it's a it's a love project that one. I really want yeah. to do it. Um, so I need to basically. Um, make all the notes. I'll keep putting thoughts down as I can. And I'm gearing up for a big writing period. Um, my, my plan was to start at the start of October uh, with a whole bunch of things that, I, that I'm doing, but it's, I've now got to push that back a bit just due to life. Um, but I'm, I'm definitely going to be doing uh, NaNoWriMo this year in November. I've made the decision that, that that's... Really? Yeah, I've made a decision that that's going to happen because I have a brand new manuscript that I actually have to finish by mid-December. Um, wow. So I'm actually going to focus on that for November. And the other ones, the other the other projects that are just, you know, in their various stages of whatever they're in um, are just things that I'm going to tinker with in between when I get some clear space. I am finding it very hard to find clear space at the moment. And, yes. um, and you know, like I'm, I'm usually really good at 10 minutes here, half an hour there. I am generally really good at that. Um, but right now I, I just don't even have the capacity for that. So it yeah. happens, you know, like we talk about this all the time that there's a, there's an ebb and flow to yeah. all of these things. Um, and I'm not, I'm not fretting too much because I know that I will, I will get back into my usual routine, yeah. but you know, we have to also accept, um, we have to also accept what life throws at us. And so we, mm. that needs to be worked with as well. Um, so yeah, I'll be back on, I'll be back into it soon, but at the, for the moment, I'm just managing my stuff. Yeah. 
Okay, so for if anyone is not familiar with NaNoWriMo, it's actually coming up very soon. It's in November and NaNoWriMo is short for National Novel Writing Month and it's actually not just national, it's international. And it's basically a case where every day in November you attempt to to write. Sometimes you might end up missing a day, but the point is to by the end of the no- November to have achieved to have achieved is it 55 or 50,000? 50,000 words. 50,000 words. Words, which ends up being 1,667 words a day if you divide it. And lots of people have actually started their novels very successfully this way. So you will be hearing more about uh, Al's plans with NaNoWriMo. Are you yeah. going to write a book with Al? Oh, I think I probably will just because it's a great motivator for me as much as anyone else. And, you know, the thing is that the both of my series started, both the Adaban Cipher series and the Mapmaker Chronicle series started with NaNoWriMo scripts, yeah. um, with NaNoWriMo manuscripts. Um, so it's kind of like it's – I find it an incredibly good way to kickstart an idea. So it's kind of um, – I've, I've written a lot of words this year. I've written 100,000 words this year. Like, you know, I, I'm always writing things. But mm. what I find with that particular project, that November NaNoWriMo, is just the focus and, you know, yes. and I like to do uh, write a book with Al because it kind of keeps – it gives me um, – What's the word I want? Accountability. I'm, I'm, thank you. I was going to say accommodation, <laughs> but that's not right. <laughs> you and your it big vocabulary. Me, it totally gives me accommodation, Val, I'm telling you, with my huge vocabulary. That's so funny. I'm such a gooper. Um Yeah, it gives me accountability and it, it helps, I think, um, it, you know, other people seem to like just to join in, in. In case there's anyone you just quickly explain, write a book with Al. Well, it's just um, – what. <laughs> It's a hashtag. It's, it's me. It's me. I do it on social media. It's a hashtag. I go. I'm starting a manuscript. If you would like to join me, jump on the write a book with ha- with Al hashtag, and then I update daily with my word counts of what I've managed to achieve that day. Some days it's zero. Some days it's not. And I basically just continue to do that until I have completed the manuscript. Um, now, given I'm writing uh, children's, you know, middle grade, those manuscripts tend to be. Uh, around the fifty to fifty-five thousand word mm. mark. So um, it's you know it's uh, I usually find that I can, can complete a manuscript within about generally speaking within about six to eight weeks. Um, so they continue on until you know I've got to the end and then I stop. So but, anybody who would like to jump on that hashtag and yes. join me should feel free. Yes. So it's not just watching Al write a book. There's heaps of people who actually join Al to write, to literally write a book with Al. And when, when Al posts her word count for the day, they post theirs theirs as well. So it's really, I, I, I love, I just love watching it and I love seeing what people, um, you know, achieve. Sometimes people get no words because something happens that day, but sometimes people really smash it out. So it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We've come to the end of this week's episode. Uh, we came to it you? about 10 minutes yes. ago and we, <laughs> then we babbled on for another 10. So, you know, anyway, we're really at the end. This is really the end, everybody, really the, the actual end. end. Where do we find you online, Al? You will find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. Uh, you'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Valerie, where do we find you? 
You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O on Twitter and Instagram. And of course, please do connect with both of us in the Facebook group. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. It's free to join. We'd love to have you in there. And of course, you can find the show notes about anything that we've talked about in um, uh, at so you want to be a writer.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone. And we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.